My name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Embers to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. I've found that it isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how we respond. Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Oh, and you pronounce your last name Polio? Oh, it's Polio, Linda Polio. 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 Yeah, that would be. That's okay. I, I've got it a million times. It <laughs> doesn't matter to me. <laughs> Today, I'm speaking with Linda Polio. She is a consciousness doula and the author of Trusting the Currents. Uh, Trusting the Currents is a multi-award winning Amazon bestseller in the inspirational fiction category. Linda has always been deeply committed to elevating human consciousness. This life purpose has guided her as an accomplished New York advertising executive, as a thought leader in conscious business and communications practices, and as the world's first chief consciousness officer at a global futurist marketing consultancy. She has experienced in various spiritual disciplines, energetic practices, and wellness modalities. As a consciousness doula, she helps people understand and connect to energetic frequencies that expand self-awareness for personal and global transformation. She believes we are all in the process of becoming something unexpected and that the answers lie in the heart. I will have links to her website and social media and uh, Goodreads where you can uh, get her book. Uh, all of that will be in the show notes. But before we begin this conversation, I just got to say thank you so much, Linda, for agreeing to come on and, and talk with me about something that you're so passionate about. Thanks, Dave. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I've been on this road a long time, and uh, I'm really happy to finally see this really becoming mainstream. Um, and it's, you know, consciousness and all the different parts of it are really important for the world as we go forward to get us out of this sort of mess that we've gotten ourselves into. To, to really understand who you are and, and really dive into, uh, well, your book and understand really this path that you're on, I'd like to go back to you know, where you were born and raised and, you know, what your parents were like, what were some of your early influences and, and maybe uh, some experiences in your young adulthood that may have shaped this understanding of consciousness for you. Okay. Um, well, I was born in New Jersey. I'm a Jersey girl. And um, I was raised in a middle-class family, um, the town I was raised in was sort of rural at the time. Now it's just sort of a big suburban sprawl, but we had you know, woods on one side of the house and we had farms on the other side. So I was surrounded by a lot of nature and, and nature actually played a huge role in my life. Um, my father was an alcoholic 
So I was raised with that energy in the house. And so there was a lot of conflict and, and struggle and um, you know, problems with that. And I had two brothers, I was the oldest. So I was uh, the caretaker of the family. I basically took care of everyone from the time I was little. And um, I took care of baby birds, I fell out of nests. I was a natural caregiver. So I really um, spent most of my childhood in you know, caring for things which I actually loved. I didn't really have any problem with it. I was just organic to um, taking care of, you know, sort of living things. Um, once I went to school, um, my parent, well, my parents got divorced when I was 25. They got separated when I was 15. They really tried. I mean, I think this happens in a lot of families that have alcoholism in their family. Um, they did love each other, but there was just so much conflict because of my father's drinking and he just couldn't get a hold of it. And um, you know, later on, I realized, you know, after um, I took care of him before he died, and I really got to know him as a man, not just as my father. And I think, you know, when you have expectations of someone as a parent, uh, you have a lot of um, sort of struggles with um, the way that they're raising you, the way that they are with you. But once I grew up and I got to know him as a man, I realized, you know, he had been orphaned. He had been, you know, he had his problems. And I think we all become what our childhood teaches us to be. And it really is important as soon as we can to recognize that a lot of the ways that we act are based on unconscious realities from our childhood that we're not in touch with anymore. And we have a lot of trauma. So I really try to work on the trauma of, of, of my father, particularly as he was dying to kind of release him from all that. Uh, I went to college, like, you know, most, people in my world at that time and uh, was not really interested too much in it. I was always sort of an ethereal child and was more interested in cosmic beings and things living in the earth and, and all that. And um, I moved to New York as soon as I could. I was very attached to going to New York. I wanted to get out of my town. I was very much about, this is not my town. Um, I needed to live in a bigger world. I had way more expectations for myself. So while all of my friends were talking about getting married and having kids, I was um, going to New York. So as soon as I graduated school, I moved to New York and I modeled for a while because I didn't know what else to do, even though, I mean, I bounced around from job to job. I was not one of these people that came out of school and went, oh, I'm going to be a lawyer or I'm going to be a biologist. Um, I had no clue what I wanted to be. I did have this faint understanding that I was here for something and that it would reveal itself in time. But I didn't know what that was. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know when it was. So I just went on and I bounced around from job to job. I got involved in sales because I was very good at selling things. Um, that became, that just was very organic to me as well. So I bounced around from job to job until I finally uh, stumbled onto advertising. And I was very creative as a child. The first two things I wanted to be when I was five years old was a nun and an artist. And I was very religious when I was small and I'm very spiritual now, but I was raised Catholic and I was very Catholic when I was young. And when I made my first communion, I was sort of in another world speaking to Jesus. Um, and then when I got older, I decided, okay, um, I don't want to be a nun, <laughs> but I still want to be an artist, but I had no influences in my family. There was no one who was an artist. There was no one that gave me any support or guidance. 
So I didn't really know too much about what being an artist really meant. So I kind of let that go to the, to the past and move forward in trying to find a way to make a living. And advertising was the first thing that hit because it was creative. And new business, which is basically the selling of advertising um, agencies was just really beginning to um, take hold. It had usually before that been done with, you know, white shoed men, white men shaking hands about, you know, over the golf course of yes, we will give you our advertising account, but things were changing and they started hiring people uh, to help market their, um, their agencies. So I got involved with that and I did that for a number of years and I did it well, I was very successful. Um, and then what happened was um, my father, I hadn't seen my father in 17 years. Uh, my parents went through a very messy divorce and I kind of detached myself from my father for a while. Um, I didn't hate him, but I could not um, accept his actions. So I just pulled myself away. So I didn't see him for 17 years. And then I get a phone call from my uncle saying my father had a massive heart attack. I was living in New York at the time and he had been living in Pennsylvania and he was dying. And did I want to go see him? So uh, my brother and I, who was living in New Jersey at the time, we went to see him in Pennsylvania. He was unconscious. Uh, the doctors had me sign a bunch of papers to uh, no, you know, sort of do not resuscitate, um, no incubation. We just wanted him to go peacefully. He was unconscious at the time. So I signed the papers and everyone left and I stayed with my father and I had been doing healing work. I do Reiki and therapeutic touch and different um, energetic uh, modalities. So I just started doing healing work on him. And I started coming back every day, even though he was a two hour drive from where I was. Um, I started doing energy work on him every day. And about two weeks later, he came out of his coma. And um, two weeks later, he was out of the hospital. And I remember asking the doctor, you know, how long does he have? And he said, I don't know. He said, I don't know how he's walking out of here. <laughs> he said, he must be very motivated. So he told me when he was walking out that he just wanted one more year alive so that he could make up, make it up for everything that he had put us through as children. And so I took care of him. Um, I went back and forth between New York and Pennsylvania. He came to visit me and slowly over that year period, I brought my brothers into it because everyone had kind of pulled back from him at that point. I brought my brothers in. And that was when I think we really got to see the, the man he was and didn't have to see him through um, a child's eyes and looking at him as the, the needs we had for him to be as a parent. So I had a lot more compassion for him and what he had gone through in his own life. So a big part of that year was giving him the chance to be, and he didn't drink the last year of his life. So he died clean of that, which was a really wonderful thing, um, I think on so many levels. And even at the end of his life, I got my mother and him back together again so that they could, you know, sort of um, say goodbye, you know, to, to the promise and to the love that they had had for each other. And um, he had a very peaceful passing. Um, I was with him when he passed and he was, redeemed. I mean, I think if he could come back and talk to me, he would tell me that he was redeemed. My last conscious memory of him was when I got him into a hospice. Um, he was a veteran. So I got him into a VA hospice and I had a fight. I couldn't, the hospital would not let, let him out. 
they didn't want to give him enough pain meds. So I finally got a social worker there that, that was compassionate and she helped me find um, the VA hospice. So he went to the VA hospice and as I'm checking him in, he had been unconscious and he just put his hand on my hand and squeezed it. And I just knew he was saying, you know, thank you for getting him out of the hospital for one thing and for everything that I had done for him for that year. And he passed the next day. He, he was only in the hospice for one day. And um, three days um, when I was leaving the hospital, there was a book on a bench and it was The Call of the Canyon by Zane Gray. And I just picked it up. It was an old worn book. I threw it in the back of my car and I cried all the way home from the hospital. And you know, both from the loss of my father, but also from the relief of not having to be that caregiver anymore and be able to go back to my life. Cause I basically had to give up my life for that year, caring for him and trying to build, bring the family back together again. So it was whole at the end of his experience. Um, so I went home and about three days later, I woke up and I heard a voice say, go to Sedona. And I had heard of it, but I'd never been here before. So I walked out and I told my then boyfriend, I'm, I'm going to Sedona. He said, where's that? I said, it's in Arizona. He said, what are you talking about? And when are you going? I said, I don't know. So three weeks later, I was on a plane. I had nowhere to stay. I didn't know why I was going. Um, it was just one of those calls that you, you get these messages from wherever the messages come from. And most of the time you ignore them because you have other things to do. But I decided to follow that message. And um, I took the book with me. I got a flat tire outside the airport. So I ended up staying that first night that I was there in a little hotel on the side of the highway outside of Phoenix. And I read the book and the book, The Call of the Canyon, was, which was actually written at the turn of the century was about a woman from New York who goes to Sedona, um, who gets called to Sedona and her call was different. She actually, in, in the story, her fiance had been a World War I vet and he had come back broken from the war. And he had gone out to Sedona to try to heal his body and spirit. And so he releases her from marrying him. And she decides, oh, no, you're not doing that. <laughs> so she gets on a train by herself and goes across the country and finds him and you know lives heavily, uh, happily ever after. But I read that book. And then I got the car the next day. And I drove, in, drove into Sedona. And I literally felt the canyons embracing me, saying, welcome home. And I stayed five months the first time that I went and I had all kinds of mystical experiences. I, I changed my diet. I, I did what I, I learned the, the Buddhists call plunging. When you take yourself out of your environment. And I think it sounds like you've had a similar experience um, when you went to that retreat in North Dakota. Um, you take yourself out of your environment where it's a totally different um, landscape. You change the way you eat. You don't know anyone there. So everything about the environment you're in is nothing to do with you. So there's nothing to reflect back the person that you had been trained to be. So as that happens, all layers of social conditioning just starts peeling away because the people that are there don't know who you are. They don't respond to you like your friends respond to you or your family respond to you. And you can create the person you want to be. Um, we're only held together by other people's perceptions of us. So if you take yourself out, you can, if you want, become someone new. So I found that really happened. And over time, I found that all those layers of social conditioning peeled away 
And I really got to see myself for the first time, not as a business executive or as a girlfriend or as a daughter um, or as a friend even, but just as me. And it was illuminating and it felt great. And I remember thinking, wow, I really liked me. Like I really liked that little kernel of, of who I was being revealed to me. And over that period of time, I went on raw foods. I changed everything about me. And after about five months, um, I decided it was about to be Christmas and my boyfriend and my mother, I think they were about to do an intervention because I wasn't coming back. <laughs> and they were, they were wondering what happened to me. So I went back um, to New York. And when I got back to New York, I realized that I could no longer fit into that corporate structure in the way that I had been, that I had to bring these new um, sort of conscious realities that I had discovered in on my personal journey um, uh, to, to business. So it was just the beginning of little organizations called LOHAS and Conscious Capitalism. So I got very involved in conscious business practices and in bringing um, what I call the human technologies of wisdom, intuition, compassion, empathy, forgiveness, and gratitude into corporate culture. Because I think um, we need to start bringing, these are human technologies. Um, we are so familiar now with digital technologies and digital technologies, and I, I really connect digital technologies with human technologies. Digital technologies came onto the planet it started with a bunch of weird people talking about some new energy that was coming in that was going to change the whole world. And everyone thought they were crazy. I was in advertising at the time and no one thought the internet was going to stick. They were anyone that any client that came into our agency that was, a, that was, a, that was an internet related business, they had the people that were going to be fired or just got hired put on their accounts because they just didn't take it seriously. So, but what happened was eventually these people, these crazy people started connecting to each other and then they started creating businesses and then they started creating language. Like all of our digital language came out of that experience. These words didn't exist before. So, and eventually companies had to create a position for a chief technology officer who was someone who understood how these technologies work and could integrate them into their business practices. So um, my thinking was that corporations needed to have a chief, tech, uh, chief consciousness officer who understood these human technologies and could start bringing these things into their employees, into their consumers, into their business partnerships um, to really change the way that we operate um, in a corporate culture, which is pretty cold. Um, uh, I think consumers are looked at almost like commodities to a lot of corporations. Um, they sort of just feed off of them. So the idea is to bring a little bit more humanity into corporations. So I did a lot of uh, uh, sort of conscious business practices, mostly working with small companies that were willing to bring these into these companies like organic companies and solar energies and all these budding new types of uh, businesses. And um, then I just started um, working on some talking to some bigger companies and I eventually got hired for a futurist marketing consultancy as the world's first chief consciousness officer. And at the time I worked with CEOs and CMOs of Fortune 100 companies, mostly educating them because at the time, this is 15 years ago, 
um, at the time, most people didn't even know what consciousness was. And even now they don't. And when people ask me what consciousness is, in its simplest form, it's simply awareness. So the more conscious you are only means that you have an expanded awareness. You believe one thing and you know one thing and all of a sudden you know more <laughs> and you see more. And that is your consciousness beginning to expand and you can um, allow it and you can help um, accelerate it through different practices and, and through um, you know, books and all different kinds of things. So um, I became the first chief consciousness officer and I work with these large companies uh, working with these um, senior executives trying to get them educated. You know, for me, it was a little more about education because no one knew what it was. And then I decided to quit my job uh, to start my own business because I was never much of an employee. I was really um, more of a consultant and I really needed freedom and I needed to kind of come and go as my own. And so I quit my job and four hours later, my mother fell and shattered her femur. So I went into nine years of 24 seven care. <laughs> So everything I thought I was going to be collapsed in one moment. And um, I didn't realize it was going to be nine years because my mother was supposed to die. So I left and inserted all of my energy into her caregiving. And then she kept living and I was doing energy work on her and I was keeping her alive up until so she could have enough energy herself to take over. Um, long story short, that went on for nine years. It was extremely difficult. It was an intense dark night of the soul, which um, anyone who is usually has some kind of conscious awakening will usually go through a dark night of the soul. A lot of it is about you'll lose things, you lose relationships, you lose jobs, you lose a sense of perception of who you are. Um, you feel alone, uh, you feel dark, you feel hopeless. But this is just part of the process. And it's really important that people that are going through that realize that it is, no matter how long it takes, for me, it was nine years. I don't think that's normal. <laughs> I don't think it usually takes that long. But for me, it was nine years. And, and it really, what happened was uh, I fought it the whole time. I really tried to pull myself back and said, I'm going to go back to myself. I'm going to go back to myself. I'm going to go back to myself. And it wasn't until I finally accepted that I wasn't going to back to myself. I was becoming someone new and I didn't know what that was. And I wasn't particularly happy about it because I liked the life I was living before. But at that point I realized I didn't have any say in it. I was being taken along in a ride and resistance to this makes it more difficult. And I think once I surrendered and just accepted that this is what I'm going through. And I'm going to do everything I can to take care of my body because what's really important during these, these times is to take care of your body. Eat right, don't fall into bad habits because what'll happen is the dark night of the soul passes. And then if you're not taking care of your body during that time, then you're left with the sick body that you then have to take care of and build back up again. And I did a little bit of that. I, I really took me a while to come back physically from my experience with my mother. Um, but uh, she passed in 2000, late 2018. And um, I took about nine months of sort of getting her life closed down. 
And then I came back to Sedona because I decided I wanted to move here. And I was all excited about coming back and starting this new life. And um, my husband and I packed up and in March of 2020, we didn't know the pandemic was coming, <laughs> but we decided to move to Sedona. I did, I kicked, dragged him kicking and screaming. Um, moved to Sedona, we gave away 90% of everything we owned. We wanted to really start off fresh and came here with four suitcases and literally the pandemic moved into New York where I was living and just swallowed New York while we were trying to get out. And it was like a portal shut up behind us when we took off on that plane. There were 15 people on the plane. There was no one in the airports. We get to Sedona and we had to go into sequestration and um, it's been two years now and we've had, it's been a kind of a bumpy ride here because, you know, because of the pandemic, but um, it's been a whole nother, you know, sort of journey. And during that period of time, when I was um, taking care of my mother, right before I took care of my mother, I had channeled a book when um, Addie Mae, I was working on an advertising project and I heard, I started hearing the voice of an old black Southern woman. And the first word she said to me, was it's not what happened to me that matters. And I had been getting my whole life what I would call high knowledge, which is just wisdom that just drops into me. And if I'm with someone and I sort of do an energetic imprint when I meet someone and I will generally start getting information for them um, that resonates, that is something that they need to hear. So I just kind of allowed that to happen. Um, that was normal, but I'd never heard a voice before. And it was a little daunting, um, particularly that it was a black voice and a Southern voice because I am white and I'm from New York. So it was a very <laughs> unusual experience for me. And I just started writing down what she said. And the first day she wrote like three or four paragraphs and then she went away. And a couple of days later, I felt her again. And for about a year, I just started, every time I felt her, I would sit at my computer and she always wrote stream of consciousness, meaning that I didn't have to think about what I was writing. She picked up where we left off and she would just tell me her story. And we just started writing this story together. And then about a year into it, she had me go back to Sedona. And I spent nine months here channeling the rest of the book. And um, nature plays a huge role in the book because it played a huge role in, in my life. And all the nature in the book was, was my experiences here in, in Sedona. Um, I got back to New York and I was a little whacked and I hadn't worked. So it was time for me to go back to work. So I put the book away for a year. I never thought I was going to publish it. Um, I went back to my life and I, one day I started hearing her again and she said, it's time to edit. It took me eight years to edit the book <laughs> because I had no idea what I was doing. I was not a writer. Um, I learned to write by writing this book and she, um, she just kept coming after me. And every time I gave up, she just came back to me and she'd have something happen. So it was a real lesson in sort of listening to these little voices that all of us, I think, hear, but we don't always listen to. And um, after eight years, I decided to publish it. And that's when my mother fell and shattered her femur. So I spent the last um, few months of editing the book and I decided to self-publish because I was a middle-aged white woman writing about a young black girl from the South. I figured no one is going to publish this book. And it was a book that couldn't be explained. It didn't fit into any, any particular genre. I couldn't get anyone I know to read it. So I just decided to self-publish it. 
And um, it came out and right after it came out, my mother ended up in the hospital again. So I didn't do anything for the book for about two years, except um, I entered a bunch of awards and it won every award. It's won 13 literary awards so far. Um, and it also became an Amazon bestseller in inspirational fiction. And it was a complete surprise. Um, so, you know, it, it, you know, for me, all this has been a big lesson in following your inner guidance, even though it makes no sense. Um, and the book now is been out for a few years, but it really is almost coming into its own now because it's all about trusting the currents in life, no matter where they're taking you. And it's, um, it really kind of leads people into deeper places in their lives. And I think, um, as we were talking about before, I mean, we have a big, as big a universe inside of us than we can perceive on the outside. It's just that we're not taught to go inside. Um, in fact, we're actually distracted from it because that's where all the wisdom lies and that's where all of our freedom lies and that's where all of our true sense of self lies. Um, but it's not comfortable to us because A, it's also where our trauma lies. So once we start going in, the trauma is the first thing that starts coming out and we have to learn how to manage the trauma that, that comes out so that, we're, that, so that we allow it to um, you know, sort of leave us and we can manage it better. So I think that's probably a little bit of a basic background. <laughs> You, you mentioned consciousness. Mm -hmm. And before we began recording, you, you had a, a really good way of describing it, where you likened it to a frozen lake. And I was wondering if you could uh, talk about that a little bit. Right. Well, I mean, consciousness in its simplest form is awareness. But I mean, I always call consciousness, like another analogy, is, I use consciousness is a giant donkey. And in that donkey is all different kinds of consciousness. And where you pin your tail is where you learn about whatever, like I pin my tail and consciousness on the heart. I believe the heart should be the center of all expanded consciousness because we really need to get back to a really deep sense of our humanity and our shared humanity and the heart is the place for it to be. But when people don't understand consciousness, I explain it as a frozen lake. If, if I'm talking to someone and they have no clue of what I'm talking about and they don't real, and all they see is the real, what is called the real world. And it's cold and it's dark and it's mean and it's chaotic and struggling and it's this frozen cold lake. But consciousness is that place that is beneath the frozen, beneath the ice, there are all these currents and all this life, there's all this life that's beneath that frozen lake that we don't see until we go beneath the lake. So people who start awakening, um, either through trauma, because trauma is a huge awakener, most people start changing their lives and start thinking about themselves differently when they face some kind of real trauma. Um, sometimes it's spontaneous and they just start seeing things differently and wondering about things differently. But usually um, it takes trauma. And then once, so that, that ice cracks and you start looking beneath the water and you see all these things you didn't see before. And it's the same, and I have another analogy where it's just, it's like when the tide's in and the water looks great and, and you're looking down and you go, this is the way life is. And then when the tide goes out, you see all the filth and the dirty stuff. You know, that's sort of the, that's sort of the reality. Like the, that, that's our deep unconscious. You know, when we, 
when we're not looking at this dark stuff inside of us, we have the tide is in and we don't see anything. We think we're fine. But if the tide goes out, we start seeing the things inside of us that really need to be looked at so that we can heal ourselves. And you know, when we heal ourselves, we heal everyone around us. It's always an inside job. There's no one on the outside that can really do it for you. They can guide you. They can model it. I think modeling is the best, like with the work you're doing, that you are, you are modeling this for the people that are most connected to you. And that is the best way to help people is to just become the thing that you're trying to explain. I mean, I think, you know, I think a lot of people now are beginning to finally beginning to look outside of what their social conditionings have been. You know, we're all, I mean, we, you know, we think we believe things, but belief systems are not truth. And even truth is not truth. Truth is a prism. Truth depends on what, where you're looking, when you're looking, and who's looking. Um, and, and belief systems are really just things that were taught. So, you know, I'm raised in New Jersey, I'm raised Catholic. I believe in certain things based on that. And, you know, we're all just little programs. And so I, I was programmed to believe certain things about myself, about being a woman, about being whatever color I'm at, um, about being, you know, the place I'm born. And all these things are just social conditionings. And what we are is really way deeper and way more expansive than that. And the social conditionings are actually kind of harnesses on us to keep us you know, under control so that we you know, live in the culture so the culture can survive. It's not really meant for individuals. Um, but once we start to question who we are, why are we doing this? Why do we believe this? Um, because everyone around me believes it. That doesn't make it true. It just makes you feel like you're not alone. And I think, you know, we're sort of pack animals and, and we want to feel that we're not alone. So even sometimes when we don't believe what our friends around us believe, we say we do because we want to fit in and we want to be accepted. And ultimately it's all about being loved, but that's a whole nother story. But um, it's, you know, it's, it really is important for um, people to find other people that are beginning to think differently than they used to. Um, and, you know, when you get strong enough, you know, it's like a, it, it's like a horse, just a, a brand new horse coming out and their legs are weak. And in the beginning, you just don't have enough to hold anybody else up. You have to first help yourself and you have to get strong and you have to, you know, do your own work on your inner trauma. We are all carrying inner trauma, all of us. It's just a matter of what you, just a matter of if you recognize it or not. It's either conscious trauma or unconscious trauma, and it can't be healed until it's conscious. But what happens is when it starts becoming conscious, people get afraid of it because they think that they're going to look weak. It makes them vulnerable, um, and maybe they're in an environment that 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 supports that theory that they are vulnerable but it's not true. So you have to find people that are willing to listen to you and that are willing to share their vulnerabilities because when you share your vulnerability and you feel weak um, and you share it with someone else who shares their vulnerability, that's the beginning of strength. And the more people that come together and share vulnerability, the more strength that comes out of that. One thing that you said uh, uh, before we 
we started recording that really to me was i mean it was spot on for for someone that has never worked in the fire service or law enforcement or uh, been a part of that community mm -hmm. you wouldn't think that you'd fully grasp this concept that you described to me but it's gosh it's dead on where and, I, and I'll just speak about my time in the fire service there's this machismo that goes mm -hmm. with with putting on that uniform with going through uh, the training the testing the and part of that testing is reaffirming that I'm tough. You know, I can accomplish these things. And, and you armor yourself with the knowledge that you're a badass, you know, that you can, you can be the person that dives through that window into this room full of fire and come out the other side with, uh, with somebody that you pulled out of there. Mm -hmm. um, you have to have that self-confidence to put yourself in that kind of danger. But it also calluses you to, to that awareness of the, the trauma that we pick up, the, the horrible things that we see in a career doing that job, um, seeing the, the horrible things that mankind does to one another uh, the different ways that a human body can be broken. You absorb all of that trauma mm -hmm. and, and the heartache that, that you know, the, I, I know so many times when I was an officer, being the one to go and, and let the family know that their loved one had passed and, you know, we did everything we could or whatever the conversation was, but they they break and you can feel it. Mm -hmm. And I internalize so much of that. And there is only so much a human can absorb before they break themselves. Well, I mean, if it doesn't break you mentally, it'll break you physically. Then you have heart attacks, you have cancer. You, when you internalize trauma, it, it's going to go somewhere. And the Native Americans had a wonderful way to deal with its warriors. Um, you know, we sort of shuffle them off into some, you know, VA centers and, and sort of forget about them. But um, what Native Americans did is when warriors went out and they went on there, you know, to catch buffalo or to, or to fight against a tribe, and they had to have that warrior energy. You know, when you go into a burning building, you have to carry that warrior energy with you because you won't be good at your job if you don't have it. The problem is not the warrior energy. The problem is knowing like when you're back from the war, you have to drop it, but it's hard because it's now embedded in you. So what, what Native American tribes did is when the warriors would come back full of this, you know, blood and fury and, you know, fire from their, from their experiences, they'd be put in a circle. And the tribe would encircle them and give them love and stay with them until they're, because if you're, if you're bringing back people like that, you know, they're going to have mental health issues. They're going to be violent. They're going to, they're not going to be able to participate in the tribe in a way that, that the tribe needs them. 
So they would just stay with them and they would stay in this circle until they, they were able to release the trauma that they had experienced when they went out to be warriors. And then they could peacefully join the tribe again and, and become productive members of that tribe until they had to go back out again. And then they would go, that was, but that's the way it worked. And, and I think that's really important for, you know, everyone that's doing that kind of work where they, where it's very traumatizing work and you need to come back out of it. Um, and you need to be in an environment where you are um, loved and that you are honored and that you are protected and that you are allowed to vent the stuff out of you. And I think, I mean, I've obviously I've never been a veteran, but uh, my father was and other you know, men that I know were, and a lot of them when they came back from war, they didn't want to talk about it. Like the ones who really saw stuff, they didn't want to talk about it because it was so entrenched in them. And it's very hard um, to come back from that unless you are allowed by society to express yourself and not look, not be perceived as being weak. Um, because the last thing you are is weak. <laughs> and strength is actually showing your vulnerability and allowing it out. What you said to me earlier about that, um, that feeling of weakness and, and, you know, having to recognize that it's okay to take off that suit of armor. Mm -hmm. um, I feel that so many times I know that it's the case for me. I waited so long to address that, that pain that I was carrying um, that when I had no choice but to allow myself to be vulnerable to address all of those things. Uh, I did feel like that, that baby duckling that was just very vulnerable. Uh, and yeah, you cracked I, open like, a, like an egg and, and the baby chicken you comes out. And for someone who is used to being strong, that is extremely threatening. That is way more threatening that's, than something violent coming at them that they can handle. But that feeling of vulnerability and and uh, you know not being not really being in control uh, is very threatening. But once once you're able to really work with that trauma and allow it out and allow it to leave you, um, you have to feel it. I mean, that's people suppress all this, but you can't release it unless you allow yourself to feel it in a safe environment. And once you truly feel it, then you can let it go. Then it just moves on. And there are you know, multiple practices and you know, ways of, of doing that. Um, but I think what's most important is to A, go on that journey, you know, decide that you're ready to do that and then find other people that are willing like you because you'll need someone to speak with and you'll find that when you start changing uh the people around you'll probably be the only one like you that you know and that can be extremely scary particularly if in your family and you've got you know like 
parents and wives and husbands and kids and all of a sudden you're speaking in language that they don't understand and talking about ideas that they don't understand that is threatening to them um, so then you start getting attacked from the outside uh, while you are trying to work on yourself because when you change you change everyone around you so that requires an enormous amount of courage the courage of change is enormous and but once you are willing to do that and once you have made that shift and that change you will find the people around you all of a sudden you'll have a friend that goes you know i'd like to know how you did that you seem happier <laughs> and everyone ultimately just wants to be happier nobody wants to be miserable um, we just don't know how to get happy anymore it's not the case in in every fire department but i feel like it was the case in mine that the upper management was so detached yeah and uh early on in my career i experienced what uh, i've come to to know as betrayal trauma where mm -hmm. you confide in somebody with some emotional baggage that you have and uh and they out you mm -hmm. as someone that's weak and doesn't belong right that's the first thing that happens that is the normal thing that happens and that is not your weakness that is their weakness that is their fear of you exposing things to them that they weren't willing to look at and authority is authority authority becomes in our culture authority through control and power and not necessarily doing good things to get it um so when you are exposing yourself to people that are going to be threatened by your you're, like I said, when you start changing, there will be people that are threatened. Now, when they expose you, that is actually a good thing for you because now you're out and now you get to work with yourself. And now you get to find that there, because I guarantee in that situation, whether you found them or not, there were some, there was at least one other guy in that that, that felt exactly how you did and was also not able to have a conversation around that. Um, when I first started really waking up, this is, I'm talking 30 years ago, I mean, a long time ago, when I really began to wake up and, and start using words. And, you know, and what happens is you'll start using different language, which is also threatening to people because we, we relate to each other based on the way we communicate. So if you're communicating as this tough, strong guy, and then all of a sudden you start talking about Reiki, <laughs> you start talking about crystals, or you start talking about trauma and dealing with trauma, all of a sudden you're using language that is alien to most of the people around you. So, um, you know, when I started waking up and I would go out and, you know, I'd be around all these people and I would purposely, when I was in a group, I would purposely start using some of that language just to see if anyone would respond. And then someone would respond, oh, energy. Ooh, let me see what energy. She's talking about energy. I'm thinking about energy. And no one else would get, get what we were talking about. And the two of us would take it out somewhere else. And we would have a conversation and we would begin to learn. So it's like, 
And then we would begin to connect. And then that was someone that I could talk to in the future. I feel like what you're talking about right now is something that you alluded to earlier. And that is uh, alignment of frequencies. Mm -hmm. Yes. I, I was wondering. Yeah, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. I, I yeah. am very curious as uh, as to how you would explain that and um, how somebody could identify, I don't know, their frequency or if their frequency is aligned with those around them. Well, frequency, everything is frequency. We're all energy. I mean, the microphone I'm talking to is made up of energy. Your makeup, we're all energy. We're all just congealed energy that turns into something that, that's, that's matter. I mean, that's just quantum physics. It's a whole nother story. But um, so, and, and in that energy, it's all frequencies. So frequencies, you know, a color is a frequency. Um, a sound is a frequency and we are different frequencies. So it's sort of like when you meet someone and you don't really know them, but you feel like you know them. Like you have this resonance with them. Resonance is the language of frequency. It helps you, it helps you connect to things. Or I like blue better than red. Why? Because your because your frequency is aligned, is resonating with that color more. And that could be for, I mean, it's a whole again, like a whole nother story about why, why people will resonate with certain things, but it's based on a lot of things. It's based on just who we are as a soul. It's based on our social conditionings. But um, if you if you're speaking to someone and there's something about them that you kind of feel a connection to, that's because you're resonating with them. And if you probably spoke to them, you would probably find things in common that you would have no expectation of having in common with them. And it could be that, you know, you're from the same place, you have the same kind of grandmother. Um, it could be a million different things, but there's a connection to that. Um, what we're all, we're, we're all just like threads of frequency. And um, for me, again, the frequencies that are in the heart are the ones that connect people. Um, you could be connected through different organs and mind and everything. But I think if you want to really work with the future of, of frequency and of resonance and of where we're going as a species, the frequency of the heart is where we're talking. And that's, you know, the heart gets covered up by our trauma. Um, we don't trust our heart because our hearts have been broken. They've been broken when we were kids or broken by people in our lives, by our parents or whatever. And so we don't trust our hearts anymore. So it's the it's working with the heart frequencies that we really begin to open up, and then we become more open to everything. And when you go into nature, and you know you touch a tree, and you will once you become more active in learning about working with energy and frequencies, you can actually feel the frequencies. And a lot of times you can feel them anyway. You can feel you can feel something. You can stand next to a tree and you can feel the vibration of the tree. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a, that's a big, that's a big part of, uh, where we're going. I mean, I, I believe, um, frequency is going to be the next big thing. Like in the last next, you're going to see the next five years, you'll be seeing more and more, uh, people talk about frequencies. Well, what is your role as a consciousness doula? Well, I mean, the reason I called myself a consciousness doula at this point in time is doulas have been around for ever. Uh, most doulas are birth doulas. They bring forth babies. 
And now we have death doulas and these are people and the whole new death movement is a beautiful thing. There is a whole movement towards natural burials and dying at home and really connecting people uh, closer to the, the sort of the truth of life and death. I mean, death is just part of life and it helps the family and it helps the person dying if, if there's a, an easy flow and you're not stuck in a hospital and you know things you know sort of connected up to you. So the death doula is someone who understands the death process and that goes into a home and helps both the person who's dying and the family through the, through the passage of death. And so for me, consciousness doula is about birthing consciousness in people. It's helping people understand what consciousness is, why they're seeing themselves differently, um, why they're looking at the world in a different way, how they can move forward, um, how they can start building community, because there are lots of communities being built now. You know, we only, you know, if you watch, if you just watch media, I don't care what media it is, if you're just on television or online and you're reading whatever someone is telling you to listen, um, you're, you're not going to really get, get, the, the, the true future because everything looks really dark from now from that side. And I always say like, you don't, you don't step under a building that's falling and collect the bricks and try to put the building together. You step back, let the bricks fall and then pick up the bricks and build something more beautiful. And the communities that are coming up now, and you know, it's sometimes it's hard to find because you don't really read about them in the news and you really have to just sort of stumble around in these conscious communities and on these different kinds of websites and, on, and books and things like that. And they are building these communities full of people that are really looking at life differently where it's way, it's like way more supportive and it's way more collaborative and co-creation. And um, they're learning to, I mean, I'm working right now with a platform that's being built. And the first thing we do is we work on ourselves because we need to be able to um, operate together um, clearly and consciously. And to do that, we have to look and deal with our own issues because I may have a conflict with you that has nothing to do with you because you are somehow creating a memory in me or a conflict in me based on my problems. And what I'm doing is because I get upset, I'm throwing it on you instead of looking at it and going, why am I getting mad at him? Like, really, is this really true? And I have this, um, I have this technique I use when I start freaking out because you know, when I was dealing with my mother, I was triggered all the time. And one time I had finally gotten away for a short trip and um, I was gone for about a week and I was supposed to be gone for three weeks. And my mother calls me and I got, really freaked out because she, I don't remember what she said to me, but all in my head, I was, I have to go back. I'm gonna have to leave this place and I'm finally starting to feel better and I have to go back. And all of a, and then I stopped myself. And again, like it's all about presence and awareness. It's, can you bring yourself into the present moment? Because, you know, I'm not the first person to say this. We tend to either live in the past or the future. We very rarely are sitting in the present. So I brought myself back to the present and I looked at my right hand and I had this intense fear inside of me and I was getting angry because of it. And I looked at my right hand, I said, is this true? Like, is the way I'm feeling true? And I stopped and I really thought about it. And I realized that 
the present moment was not full of fear. What I was doing was pulling the memory of having to go back and the things I was going through into my present moment. And then I was projecting it into the future so that I was bringing fear from my past into my future without really understanding what was happening in the present. So I stopped myself and I went, okay, it's not really true. I'm just making this up in my head. I'm just being triggered. And it's very important when you're being triggered to try to catch yourself before you go. We all, when we get triggered, we go down a rabbit hole and we either get really angry, some people get violent, some people get suicidal, some people get, you know, they just go down this rabbit hole and we almost, it's almost like a plane crash and you can't pull it up. You almost have to crash and then you start over again. Then you're like, oh, I can't believe I did that again. <laughs> I can't believe I didn't catch myself. But I find this to be a very good way to catch yourself is to physically look at your right hand and go, is this true? And they go, no, it's not true. I'm just, I'm just being triggered. And then you look at your left hand and you say, what's good in my life right now? And most of the time there's something, oh, my kids, my wife, my job, I'm going on a trip, like whatever, whatever is true. It doesn't matter what it is, but it has to be something that makes you feel good. And then you go, okay, that is what's true in my life. This good stuff is what's true in my life. And then you take one small action. So at the time, what I was doing is I was trying to get myself healthy again because I had gotten so sick taking care of my mother. So after I realized I'm in a safe place, I'm out in the sun, I'm enjoying myself, I don't have to go back. My brothers are there. I'm okay. Let me go have a green juice. Let me take an action towards that positive thing. And it doesn't matter what the action is and it doesn't matter what the positive thing is, but it's about, it's about creating something in that positive space so that you then solidify that thing that's positive. And if for some reason you're having it particularly bad and you can't think of anything that's good in your life at that moment, find gratitude. Find one thing you're grateful for. And that is a thing that you hold on to. And we, even if that little, that good thing is so narrow that you can hardly stick your nose to it to breathe, you put your nose to that good thing and you inhale the oxygen from that good thing. And you'll be surprised the thing, if you can do that, the thing that you were sure was gonna be so awful and the anger and the fear and the panic that's rising in you, it will, it disappears like a fog. It just disappears like a fog. It doesn't, because most of our fear is not real. Most of our fear, we, we create from, from old trauma and we bring it into our present moment. What you were describing, Phil, you were describing like cognitive distortions and the practice of, of reframing mm -hmm. uh, cognitive behavior therapy. And exactly. It's, uh, it, it is such a powerful tool. And there's, there's so many methods of, of reframing. Um, I, yep. This is the first time I've heard that one. And, and that's a simple one. It's very yeah. simple. I mean, and like I said, there's no one way. Everyone finds their own way. You know, we're not, we're, we're, all, we're all individuals. You know, we have these individual souls. They're, indi they're individual. And we will, and through this, these individual souls and our particular social conditionings, we are just distinct. So there's not gonna be a one size fit all, fits all. Um, so someone may get one kind of success doing using some 
some way of helping them reframe and some way may find success in another way. And it doesn't really matter. All you wanna do is make yourself um, see things differently so that you can be, you can be clearer. I wrote a blog um, a while ago, at, you know, at the end of my time with my mother, it was, had been so hard. And I really, you know, I had gone through a, a period of very intense suffering and I never had, I didn't know that level of suffering existed. And I had never had that experience in my life before. And it was awful. And at the end of it, you know, I thought about writing a book about it because we really don't have books about that you know it's it's kind of the suffering is sort of the last taboo people don't look at suffering um they don't want to know suffering um but you know it's like you know our government tells us you know to keep quiet about it our religions tell us to wait till the next life uh media minds it for entertainment um so we really sort of don't really have a good perspective about suffering, but suffering is extremely powerful and very transformational. Um, if, if we allow it, you know, all great artists suffer, all, um, all political and religious, you know, change comes from the ashes of suffering. You know, someone suffers so that we can be, I mean, the people that came across in wagon trains across to the West, they suffered so that people like me can now live in Sedona in a nice way. Um, so there's always growth. And at the end of suffering is always freedom. Um, even if you're suffering through death, you have freedom through death, but most of the time there is freedom at the end of suffering if you just allow yourself to go through the process. And I wrote a blog about it because um, I really needed to understand it myself. I needed to understand what I went through. I called it making sense of suffering. And because I needed to make sense of it myself. Um, and I think it's important that we, we normalize the fact that suffering is a big part. Um, I think I start, I think I start the, the blog um, but by a quote by Helen Keller saying that suffering is our most universal life experience that we share as humans. Everyone suffers and yet we turn our way. We act like it's, uh, it, it doesn't exist and we act like people are suffering. There's something wrong with them. And, in the, and, the, and the truth is, it's part of the human experience and we should be supporting people that are going through that. And if we can't do anything for them, we just have to hold them in a space of, of um, non-judgment and allow them to go through the process um, by themselves. I just spoke to Robert Maddox. He's an author and um, he, he talks about dealing hope and, mm -hmm. and what hope is and uh, really how you create or grow hope within yourself or within the, somebody that you're mentoring, leading, whatever it is. Um, but that, that sense of community is part of it. Yes. Um, showing that person that they are a part of something bigger than themselves, that they belong to this community, even if it's just you and them. But they are. We, we're all part of each other. Right. <laughs> but you've, you've been there, right, where you feel all alone. Yes. And that's part of the process. And I think 
that's something that is hard to accept and understand, but that solitude, that aloneness you feel is the fertile ground for the person you're going to become. Um, when I was going through the deepest, darkest part of my suffering, I thought that I had lost myself. I thought that the person that I had been had been was had been shrunk to a raisin. And once I relinquished my need to control the situation and to go back to who I'd been, um, what I realized was that what suffering was really doing was opening parts of my soul that had never been exposed before. It was actually making me a bigger person. It was actually bringing aspects of myself to me that I never would have met without suffering. So, and there's a, you know, there's, I mean, compassion and empathy. If you suffer, you're gonna have way more compassion and empathy for other people suffering than if you've never gone through the experience yourself. So um, it's important that we sort of allow that process to arise. And, you know, just, you know, I, I think I talk about in the blog about the, you know, the highest service you can be of humanity is to be a witness to someone's suffering and allow them, even if they're in, even if they're alone, to just allow them to express themselves even if you can't fix it, but you know, we all wanna fix things for people. And if we can't fix it, then we wanna withdraw from them because then we feel that we're failing in some way and, and you don't fail. Just acknowledging that people are going through that and that you're there for them is, is huge. You don't, you don't have to solve their problems. Um, you just have to let them know that they're not alone. Something that you just said about empathy, uh, being able to, to come to that point um, through experiencing some form of suffering. Uh, you know, it's making me think a, a lot about, well, any amount of good research on leadership will tell you that the best leaders are empathetic. They, um, they are there to ensure the success of the people that they're leading. And they show up for that individual where they are. Mm -hmm. and, and, yes. they're, and they're there for them. And a lot of times in, well, in law enforcement and military, and the fire service, the leaders show up as these strong, uh, emotionless, let's get it done, let's attack it. You can feel the pain later, um, but not around me, let's go. We're mm -hmm. gonna do this. That's not exactly the best kind of leadership, maybe in the moment, but it's hard to turn that off when you're there. Right. So I, I would like to maybe challenge some of the listeners that are in that place that recognize themselves as that kind of leader uh, to maybe allow themselves to, to feel that, that brokenness inside them. 
Yeah, I mean, most mostly most of our historical leadership at this point in our history is leadership is really more about control. You're controlling people. You're controlling what they do. Um, you're not looking at them as humans. You know, you're looking at them as tools for whatever or or pieces of machinery or things that have to be done. And that I mean, that is historic. We've been we you know that's been historic. So, I mean, this goes on another whole tangent, but that is a very strong masculine energy is control. Um, and, you know, our history really needs to integrate more feminine principles, which is what's happening now. And people look as the feminine is weak and the masculine is strong, but any woman who's given birth can tell you that you have to be super, super strong. And it's just a different, it's not, one is not better than the other. They're actually meant to go together. They're meant to have both. We, sometimes we need our strength. Sometimes we need to be warriors. And sometimes we need to have compassion and, and, and empathy. Um, so one is, you know, it's not one or the other, but I think we've been so heavy with the masculine ideals of leadership, which is about control and power and not about empathy and guidance. Um, we've lost our sense, our, our inability to guide. It's all like, you know, there's, there's no carrot, it's just a stick. You know, you just beat people into submission and the people that become authority figures often don't want to give that authority up because they don't wanna be the one that's being beat. <laughs> so, so they hold on tight. Um, but that's just, that's just been our social conditioning. You know, in general, most people, if they were in a position in their life where they could really sit down and be honest, they would rather be nicer people. They would rather have um, more understanding about themselves. They'd rather, I mean, mean people are not happy. It's impossible to be mean and happy in the same space. So if they're mean, they're not happy. And if they're not happy, it means that they are dealing with their own trauma that they have no idea what to do with. And they're, so they're just putting up the walls and spitting it out. And um, it's not necessary. And um, you know, there, I think over time what will happen is there'll be more things, you know, retreats and more organizations that start bringing leaders and the people that they're responsible for together to start learning how to deal with each other on a more humane way so that it's it's about a bunch of people that share the same vision and are willing to work together to get there and you know not everyone can be the leader i mean but we're all we're all i think at a time where we're beginning to become our own leaders um it's easy to lead people that don't lead themselves that don't have any sense of themselves, that don't know really who they are or what they want to do. It's easy. You, you basically scare them, give them a perk, and they'll do anything you want. And so now what we're what the world is trying to do is help is really help people um, be less scared and understand who they are more. And then once they do that, they understand each other better. They're going to have less issues with trying to control. They're going to realize that you know, you put five people together, you know, we're all going to have different skills. One person can guide, they can lead, like I'm working on these projects now. And, and, you know, there's a whole bunch of us that are all leaders, but one person has to make the decision, 
What's the technology we're using? What colors are we using? We could give input, but someone's gonna make the final decision. So it's just that once we all are our own leaders, then leadership will become a, a totally different thing. And, and there's a huge pressure on, on authority leaders now too. They feel an enormous amount of pressure because they're being pressured by the people above them and they're being pressured by the people below them and they want to stay where they are or go higher in authority because they think it's better, but it's generally not. Um, you may get more money and you may get more prestige, but you're not gonna be happier and wouldn't you rather just be happier? It goes back to, to purpose and, and yeah. what, what your values are uh who you are at the core if you're holding a position for prestige or money or anything like that that doesn't really serve anybody but you and uh ultimately i think it leads to um well a, a, a failure as a leader well that's um, what's happening now i mean our culture is is collapsing because we really don't have any leadership in any direction. I mean, everyone likes to think that this person's better or that person's better, but we really don't have any. This is a time of us really be coming together um, as individuals in our own leadership and our own self-worth and coming together with people that maybe think differently than us, but they only think differently than us because they were born in a different place and they were raised by different people but they're still people and they still have all the fears and all the joys and all the needs emotionally um, that, that, I mean, everyone loves their children and everyone you know, wants to have a nice life and nobody really wants conflict, but um, there's conflict out of fear. I can't thank you enough for, for coming on and sharing your story with, with the audience, with me. Like I said earlier, when I introduced you, I, I'll have links to your website and your, your social media okay. uh, at the bottom of the, the uh, show notes. So anybody that's listening right now, if, uh, if you'd like to connect with Linda or, or get a copy of her book, just go to the show notes. It's all right there. You know, yeah. And, and Dave, thank you so much for the work you're doing because you really are holding a very important uh, space for the people that that listen to you. Um, I think it's, uh, you know, you're going to be gathering the gathering the moss. You're going to be gathering people to you because more and more people, as we go through the next two or three years, we're going to have a tough time on the planet and we need to start coming together um, from a totally different perspective than we have in the past. And I think that, you know, the work that you're doing is, is, is really beautiful work. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them, and the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.